So I'm speaking to you on Thursday, and barring some sort of remarkable turn of events on Sunday when you're listening to this, we are in that phase of the election where you feel like you're ripping off a Band-Aid very, very, very slowly. Uh, apparently because the election was under contractual obligation to the year we're in to make it like that. All kidding aside, in a season like this, and in a moment like this, with the election not in our rearview mirror still, we would ordinarily be going to Daniel right now to pick up where we left off from last week and going to a chapter and finding what question that it is out to answer for us that's of benefit. Instead, I'd like to exercise a little pastoral privilege and go to the Bible and ask a question of it that is a question on mine and perhaps your mind and I know a lot of other people's minds right now and that is the question, now what? Now this would be the same question whether the outcome of the election were determined or not. So it applies in any season, but particularly we feel it in this season, now what? How shall we live in light of all things? And so we're going to go to one place, two verses, that speak of three prayers that's going to offer us four things to think about. We're going to listen to the first two verses of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the Lord's Prayer. And as I said, we're going to find in those two verses three prayers he instructs us in, which provide for us, I think, four reasons for contemplation, four implications that we need to consider and to ask him to help us grapple with. And I think each one of those implications is going to help us answer the question, now what? So it'll go fast, so don't blink. Here's Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Our essential text for today is found in Matthew 6. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. There's an exchange between a mother and her daughter in a novel by Madeline Engel in which the mother says, prayer was never meant to be magic. And the daughter asks, then why bother with it? And the mother responds, because it's an act of love. Matthew leaves out from his rendition of the Lord's Prayer what Luke leaves in. And in Luke's account, it's the disciples that come to Jesus and ask him to teach them to pray because they have a problem with it. They, they get stuck in it. They, they stammer in it. They stumble in it. They wonder, may wonder what's the point. And that's everybody's problem with prayer. What's the point? And yet, in this prayer, Jesus is out to say unto us this thing. Our problem is this. You and I tend to think of prayer as perhaps an act of last resort. And Jesus, by teaching his disciples to pray, and then ensuring that that teaching got to us through his word, is out to say, rather than it be an act of last resort, perhaps it ought to become an act of first impulse. The, question to the, the, the answer to the question, now what, probably should begin with, hey, let's pray first. And so in these first two verses of that prayer, we're going to find four implications, four things that you and I need to contemplate if we're going to know how we should live in the wake of this moment and every moment. And the first one comes down to just the first two words of the prayer, our Father. 
what are we out to contemplate by just hearing those first two words? Well, okay, take the word our for just a second. To our Western individualistic ears, that seems a little odd for someone to teach you how to pray. We, we, we might expect Jesus to say to his disciples, all right, here's how it goes. Say this, my father, dot, dot, dot. He doesn't. Now, we can credit the belief in the imago Dei of us being made in the image of God to explain why there even is an appreciation for the individual, why we even think about the individual having dignity or worth. But when Jesus is out to say unto us, to teach us how to pray, our Father, he's out to say to us this, there is no faith in God apart from a shared faith with those who also share that faith in him. In other words, to borrow that awfully threadbare axiom, just as there is no I in team, so there is no I in church. That as you and I have are united to God by faith in him, so in the same way we are united to each other with that shared faith in him. We say this prayer as if holding hands and locking arms. There is an ourness to the I-ness of our belief in the Lord. And for him to speak to us in that way is, is out to have us contemplate something really profound. But you can only get that when you then couple it with the other word of the phrase, our Father. Now, to those who would have first heard this prayer, for Jesus to say that we should address the Lord as Father would probably have been a little bit surprising. There are a few instances in the Hebrew Bible in which either a prophet refers to God as a father over a nation, or even God speaking of himself as a father unto a people, but those instances are pretty few and far between. So for Jesus to come right out and say it, and say, you should address your father, your in the plural form, as father, it would have been a surprise. And they might have thought, this is rather cavalier. Maybe it's rather presumptuous on Jesus' part. And yet he would say, don't, don't think another word about it. He refers to his father and, and says to his disciples later in the Gospel of John, and now my father is your father. It's, it's too prominent in, in the way he addresses the Lord and, and too prominent in what his teaching to us about the Lord is for us not to feel more confident about addressing God as father. Because so he is. If you who are evil, he says in Matthew chapter 7, will give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You and I are to address the Lord as our Father. And that's to get us to, I think, the first thing that you and I need to contemplate. You want to answer the question, what now? What now? You and I need to contemplate our commonness. Now, not commonness in the sense of ordinary, like common folk or, you know, common lore. I'm talking about what is of a shared universal quality among all of us. That's our commonness, such that we have a certain obligation to one another on its basis, or at least we have an obligation not to act as if the otherwise were true. We have to contemplate our commonness. Now, to be, to be precise and to be complete, Jesus in this moment is talking to his disciples. And so he's addressing those who have a common faith by following him. And so we read in John chapter 1, to all of those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become what? Children of God, children of a father. And therefore, in that sense, it's a shared faith 
in Jesus as Lord and God as Father. There's that sense. But when you, you step over to, to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on earth finds its name. In that sense, he's talking about every single human that shares both a common origin and a common dignity from him who is God, who is responsible for all that exists. So in this sense, there's, there's two senses in which we think of our commonness. There is a common faith within our faith, and then there's a common dignity that we share with all people across faiths and across diversity. In that sense, we have to consider our commonness if we're going to know what it is to do about the question, what now? Now, why do I need to say that? You probably have already read stories, or you might yourself be in the middle of a story, whether it's happened between parents and children, colleagues and colleagues, neighbors and friends. There are stories of children saying to their parents, you are no longer my mother as a consequence of your political allegiances. There may be neighbors on your street who now will refuse to talk to you if even in polite company you began to speak of what are your political convictions. And in that moment, there's this sense of bizarre, bewildering, off-putting recrimination that bubbles up in people such that they are now denying anyone's claim on them who does not share that same conviction. And that, my friends, is a tragedy. And you can attribute that move that is happening across this land to any number of reasons. But if you'll just let those first two words sink in, our Father, a season like this and in a predicament like what we find ourselves in or in the stories that we're reading, it requires you to consider your commonness if you want to avoid that kind of pitfall. Christian Wyman is a is a poet I've mentioned to you before. Um, he's also a theologian. And he wrote this paragraph um, not so long ago that speaks of differences that are theological. I want to read it to you, but I want you to substitute the word theological, I want you to substitute the word political every time you hear the word theological and hear how the idea still holds. Listen. The spiritual efficacy of all encounters is determined by the amount of personal ego that's in play. If two people meet and disagree fiercely about the theological matters, but agree silently or otherwise that God's love creates and sustains human love, and that whatever else may be said of God is secondary to this truth, then even out of what seems great friction, there may emerge a peace that though it may not end the dispute Though neither party may be convinced of the other's position, nevertheless enters and nourishes one's notion of and relationship with God. Friends, when you consider your commonness, your common origin, your common dignity, your common dependence upon a righteousness that endures forever and a love that endures all things, when you believe that, when you reckon with that, all other convictions, no matter how deeply held, are seen in a different light. And they are swallowed up by that greater context, that greater sense of commonness. And it is what leads us then 
to believe that there is no election, no choice that should ever justify ending a relationship. That's what it means to consider and contemplate our commonness. And it's the first answer to the question, what now? So the first thing we have to contemplate is who we are in light of who God is. The second thing has to do with where we are in light of, shall we say, where God is. And that you gather from what comes next in the verse. Our Father who art in heaven. All right, who's art? Who talks like that? They did well back. Who is in heaven? God is in heaven. Now, language is helpful. Language helps us to reach for understanding, but it also has its limitations. And Jesus is not out to mislead us by speaking of his Father who is in heaven, but it does give this sense that we all kind of unintentionally embrace that, that heaven is kind of like way out there, far away, like, you know, 12 parsecs away. But Jesus is not out to mislead. He, he is speaking of a unique realm, but too often we, we think of heaven like a place, like Fresno. And we probably ought not think of it in those terms. There's probably a better way of conceiving what Jesus even means by the awareness of God. And, you know, there was a film that came out several years ago, um, a film based on a book written by Carl Sagan, you know, the famous astronomer and a cosmologist and, and also an outspoken atheist. He wrote a book called Contact. It gets made into a film. It's about um, a woman scientist who, who meets up with um, a priest and uh, they become friends and they move toward each other. And so it's a woman of science and a man of faith. And we come to discover that those two things can actually go together and thrive together. And she has this experience that leads her to think of, uh, of something that is greater than even what you can pick up by telescope or any other means of, of monitoring. And without taking away too much from the storyline, she, she comes to have an encounter with a dimension that is not visible to her, but that is only accessible if she is invited into that world. And when she has to return to explain it to others, no one believes her because she can't reproduce the event and can't produce any evidence. And therefore, for her to believe it, it takes faith. That whole idea of this, this realm that is as near to us, but is invisible to us, and yet is as real as our face, and yet is only accessible to us with assistance, that's closer to what it means in thinking about God as one who is in heaven, right? Now, why, why bring up that kind of woo-woo explanation of how we conceive of this? Because that too is asking us to contemplate something. We've contemplated our commonness. Now, now Jesus is asking us by way of implication to contemplate our context, where we are. Why bring that up? What's, what's the importance of, of talking about this dimension that is heaven, that is near to us, that is overlapping with what we are, where we are, and which the Lord seeks to recreate in this domain as surely as it is in his domain? And we'll get to that more often. Why? Why are we going there? Because, I'll tell you why. The earth that I'm on, the the majestic mountains I'm in front of. I'm, I'm standing um, in front of Sugarloaf Mountain, there off my left shoulder. Uh, I stand to you, among you, among the uh, tens of thousands of leaves that fall every time. And in all of this, there is beauty and glory and majesty and fecundity and intricacy, and you like that word? Intricacy and diversity, all of that. But 
At the same time, all of this, for all of our wonder and awe at it, it is a pale, frail, precarious, contingent, and broken place in comparison to what heaven is. I, I have quoted to you on no, no shortage of occasions this, this wonderful um, uh, short novel that C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce, which you can actually uh, watch an online version of a play of it next, next weekend. Ask me how, I'll tell you. The Great Divorce. It's, a, it's an imaginative retelling of, of those who are consigned to hell, taking a bus ride from there to the outskirts of heaven. And here in an early moment in that uh, story is of someone who has come to see even what the outskirts of heaven are, that they are luminous. And, and as one person puts it, who sees it, he, he takes note of it. He says, it was the light the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. As I stood recovering my breath with great gasps and looking down, I noticed that I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. Now, to be sure, Lewis has given us an imaginative uh, retelling of what heaven might be like, but it is certainly grounded in something we hear even in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul when he speaks of resurrection as that which is corruptible, like these dying, desiccating leaves becoming incorruptible, never susceptible to death and decay. That's the nature of heaven, where you don't get sick and you don't ever die. It's the nature of that place. And when you consider that, when you consider your context as on earth and yet in submission to and contingent upon heaven, it helps you with something, especially in this season, because you and I, in this political season, have one of two temptations. There are those of us who will say, if we can just have this certain outcome, everything will be fine. All will be well. If it'll just happen that way. Let me... Let me, let me say one thing to you to remind you of just how precarious this existence is and just how easy it is for everything to fall into the ditch. Ready? Here's the word. 2020. If you think that if just this certain outcome can be had, if these set of conditions will just obtain, that all will be well. Oh, my friend, even you know that's naive. But there's a flip side to that one. There are some who think if it will just have this outcome, all will be well. And there are others who think if we don't obtain this certain outcome, then everything will be awful. Nothing will be worth it. And therefore you adopt not naivete, you adopt despair. It's a resignation. But friends, in both situations, both temptations, whether towards naivete, that everything's going to be fine if we just get this outcome, or everything's going to be ruined if we don't get this outcome, on both counts, you forget where you are. You forget your context. You forget how everything is contingent and can pass away in a heartbeat. Or you can forget in whose sight you are and in whose care you are, namely the one who lives in heaven, who seeks to make the story of heaven the story of earth. You and I need to contemplate our commonness. We also need to contemplate our context. Otherwise, we're going to fall into either of those temptations of naivety or despair. But there's a third thing we need to contemplate too, even based on these two verses. And it comes down to what he says about, Hallowed be thy name. All right. 
hallowed. What? Do, we don't use that language typically anymore. What does it mean? It means to revere, it means to respect, it means to cherish. And, and so far, the entirety of these five or six words about this prayer it had everything to do with God. But in each one of these implications, it's asking us to consider something about ourselves. Something that we have to contemplate. And in this sense, when we say the words, Hallowed be thy name, what we're asked to contemplate is what I'd like to call our controlling principle. The one thing that we have to keep coming back to that has to dictate every thought, feeling, and action. A controlling principle that when we say of God that He is to be hallowed, we're saying of Him that His, His person is to be revered, His holiness is to be upheld, His glory is to be cherished and adored, and His will is to be obeyed in everything that we do. And therefore, this prayer, this contemplating our controlling principle is inviting us into not only cherishing His person, but showing forth that reality in and through our lives. That's our controlling principle. And look, what, what, what's the relevance of, of saying that to you in this season? How shall I put it? Uh, Thanksgiving is around the corner. And it is possible that you will, you will take your dog up the walk, up the street, and you might see neighbors who perhaps share a different political persuasion that you do, or it may be the case that you might be fortunate enough to be able to sit down at table with those you love, and it's quite possible that around that table expresses a wide range of opinions on certain things like that. And in a moment like that, you will be tempted to do all sorts of things that you might say is far afield from hallowing the name of the Lord. What does it mean to hallow him? It means to avoid the, avoid the taunt and the sneer. It means to avoid the straw man arguments that you might use to substantiate your claim. It means, especially if you are provoked, not to offer with recrimination. To hallow his name is to speak with truth, to speak for the goodness of what is and not to be ashamed of that. But it is also to speak truth, always with love. What he prays in this prayer, he's only elaborating on later in the Sermon on the Mount. He says there towards the end of chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's hallowing his name by doing that which is pleasing in his sight in a very public way. To be hallowing him is therefore has a public quality to it. Now look, to believe in Jesus, to have this belief, and to, to express it in both word and in deed, it's unavoidable that you will risk offense. I mean, you just mentioned the word God, and it is very possible that some people are triggered by the use of that word. That's unavoidable and inevitable. And yet, inasmuch as that belief risks offense, it is not um, inevitable that in the expression of that belief that you would naturally be offensive. It is not a given that in your attempt to speak with conviction about truth, with humility, it's not inevitable that you will be offensive. In fact, to speak with conviction and to seek to be kind, those are not mutually exclusive priorities. They can happen simultaneously. And it doesn't even take much creativity. Now, I'll tell you one way it doesn't work. If you refuse to be kind, 
If you refuse to entertain other possibilities or listen to someone and seek to learn from them or even demonstrate to them respect by trying to really dignify their point of view if it differs from your own by trying to put it back in their own words. If you refuse to do that, if you refuse those forms of kindness, you know what that does? That does invalidate your convictions. And then kindness and convictions, never the twain shall meet. But to hallow his name is to seek to be able to speak carefully. It, it does not mean that um, you must accommodate everything that someone says. It does not mean that you must be silent at all times. But when it means to hallow him, it doesn't mean you're having to choose between being repulsive and being cowardly. All it means is that you seek to be very humble in your honesty. How do you hallow his name? You seek to be humble in your honesty. And when you do that, and when you go there in our particular locale, you are beginning, or once again, beginning to answer the question, what do we do now? We contemplate our controlling principle, and that gets us to the very last thing that we have to contemplate from this prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. In that, that very brief, rhythmic litany of phrases, what you are hearing is God enunciating his intentions. He is expressing what is his will for the world. And like I quoted you earlier from that Malcolm Geit poet, where the story of heaven becomes the story of earth, where that which is fully true from the domain in which he exerts his influence, that that which is fully true there would seek to become fully true in this dim and yet glorious version of what we walk around on earth. And in that, we find our basic calling. That His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord seeks that for His earth. And He uses all sorts of means to accomplish that intention. And sometimes those means are extraordinary and without explanation. And happen in an unseen way, behind the scenes. But a lot of the times, He expresses that intention through means that are perfectly ordinary as ordinary as us, working in and through us to his own end. And in this season, I need to say that, given what we're all in the middle of still. Because like we said earlier, there are always temptations that come at us in a season like this. And once again, we are, we are prone to one of two temptations. There is the one temptation that thinks, Gosh, if we can just get the right people and policies in place, then you know what? We can sort of sit back and relax and watch the goodness flow, right? And then there's the flip side of that mentality that says, oh gosh, if we don't get the right people and policies in place, then you know what? Um, you know, we probably better go find some land in Wyoming and sign up with that prepper group. In either case, it falls prone to that same temptation and to forget what our basic calling is. Friends, we have work to do regardless of what people or policies are ever put in place. We have work to do that is our calling and in that calling we have both a mandate and a privilege to act on his behalf, to act as his ambassadors, to act in the power of his strength. That is our calling and so we have no place 
to become complacent if the, we think the right policies are people in place. And we have no place to be despairing or resigned if we think that the right policies and personnel are not in place. Yours and my basic calling, which we have to sit with and simmer on and meditate on and contemplate on, is that we have a calling to let Him work in and through us so that what is true of heaven might become true of earth in some sort of small way through representing Him and advancing His interests. And you know that. But in this season, we are tempted to forget that. Okay. That's all we have to contemplate. That's all, right? Our commonness, our context, our controlling principle, our basic calling, that's it. And even as I hear that, I'm tired. And you're probably tired too. And you're probably thinking maybe with a certain measure of cynicism yourself going, is that even possible? Because I don't have it in me. I don't have it in me to fulfill all of that. In fact, I might feel a certain measure of honor to be commissioned to that kind of contemplation and to work from it, but after a while I know that my zeal will fail. And that's why I would say to you, what's even more important in what we're praying and therefore what we're contemplating in the wake of that prayer, what's even more important is the one who is teaching us to pray. Because it is Him to whom we have to look for any hope of any of this coming to reality, for any of us being able to answer the question, what now? I want to play you a song that many of you are probably already familiar with. And the first time I heard it was in the wake of the election four years ago. And I think its truth remains. I think its truth abides. And I, I know full well that there are plenty of people that will hear this song and who will absolutely despise it for what they think is utter naivete and tone deafness. But I think there is just as many people who might cherish it for the truth that remains. I want you to hear the song. And I want you to realize that when it comes down to living out what we've heard from the one who has taught us this prayer, there is something rather foundational to that entire effort. My body won't hold me anymore And it finally lets me free Will I be ready When my feet won't walk another mile And my lips give their last kiss goodbye Will my hands be steady when I lay down my fears, my hopes and my doubts The rings on my fingers and the keys to my house With no hard feelings When the sun hangs low in the west And the light in my chest won't be kept held at bay any longer when the jealousy fades away and it's ash and dust for cash and lust and it's just hallelujah and love and thought 
Love in the words, love in the songs they sing in the church, and no hard feelings. Lord knows they haven't done much good for You can have adversaries, you can have contrarian people in your life, you can have people who profoundly disagree with you, but I have no enemies. I have no enemies, the song sings. And we hear that and, and perhaps we glory in it or perhaps we, our eyes glaze over think it's impossible. Friends, it's not impossible 
if you also believe that you were once enemies of God and that while you were yet enemies, Christ died for you to make you his own. And to the extent that you and I believe that is the extent to which we will not cling to those things that drive us apart and suggest to us that we should be true enemies. It is the one thought, the one hope, the one love that might allow us to believe that we need no enemies. Friends, perhaps it has to begin there for you in your world. Whatever high and towering plans we have to let Him work in and through us, to let what is true on earth be as true as it is in heaven, perhaps it has to begin with longing to have no enemies. And then perhaps we'll have an answer to that question, what now? And then we'll be able to be patient with our love and to endure all things, even a season like this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.